0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 183, The Brothers York. First of all, just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a group of independent-minded folk who like a bit of a cast now and again. You can find out more at agorapodcastnetwork.com. This month, our featured podcast is the China History Podcast by Chris Stewart. 5,000 years in 30-minute chunks. And you can find Chris at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. It seems a long, long time ago, so long, that we were last speaking of matters political, of the Wars of the Roses. I've missed it! (laughs) But now we're back. So, shall we have a little recap? We left our noble House of York high-fiving and fist-pumping their way round the party circuit. They had, for all intents and purposes, eradicated the House of Lancaster. Margaret of Anjou was captured and under control. All the Lancastrian male heirs had been thoroughly toasted and the only remaining imp was from the House of Tudor, the 14-year-old Henry Tudor who'd fled to Brittany with his uncle Jasper. Now all that remained was to share the spoils amongst the victors and have a hoot. Now, there are going to be a lot of names, a lot of names in the following episode and I'd really like to apologise... Some of you will hopefully recognise some of the names like Gloucester and Clarence and Hastings and Anthony Woodville. There are others like Stanley Richard Grey, Thomas Grey, Henry Bourchier, on which you may be a little bit more shaky. But fear not, gentle listeners, fear not. If you are able to access the most puissant World Wide Web and find my website, thehistoryofengland.com, I have prepared a page just for you to help you. If you can't go to the website, then tough, you're on your own. So, it all looked good. Edward and Elizabeth were very obviously, um, fecund. It's not an attractive word, fecund, is it? Not sure why. A bit like moist, a word to be avoided. Anyway, Elizabeth in England now had Elizabeth, five years old, and keen on dancing with her dad. Mary, who was four, Cecily was two, and then after three girls had arrived, Edward, an heir who was now one, and Margaret had just been born at the age of uh, naught. Now that the production line was up and running, there were more on the way. Richard would be next, then Anne, George, Catherine and Bridget in 1480. By the time Elizabeth called time, she'd have made ten children with Edward and two from her first marriage. Fecund is hardly adequate. As the dust of Tewkesbury settled, King Edward had to establish his new government and could do so now in the full and certain knowledge that he was planning for the long term. Edward was a decisive man a natural leader, full of energy, with a close and constant attention to the detail of government and a traditional model of medieval kingship, which emphasised that a king's job was to work with his nobility to govern. He was also a party animal with a passion for pastors. But now it was time to reward the people who had been loyal to him and around whom he planned to govern his kingdom. Edward was now in a completely delightful position. His authority was unchallenged and unchallengeable. Now was the time when he could dump on the Lancastrians. To any extent, essentially, he felt inclined. But he was a generous man, and as we have seen with Somerset, inclined to trust and give folks a second chance. So by and large, after Tewkesbury, Edward welcomed Lancastrian supporters back into the fold, back into his grace and his favour. Let me give you an example. And a good example, I think, is a bloke called Dr John Morton. Morton was a rather brilliant man, a real talent. Edward recognised that and was keen to use his skills for his own use, despite Morton's very obvious allegiance to the Lancastrian cause. Morton was a lawyer who attached himself to Edward of Westminster, that's Margaret and Henry's son. He became the young prince's chancellor, And meanwhile he held a number of religious livings, as fine an example of pluralism as you can wish for. After the defeat at Towton, Morton stayed at the Queen's side in Scotland and was fighting with her in Northumbria in 1462 and 3. And then he remained as a staunch supporter of the Queen in exile. But no matter, never mind all of that, after the disaster of Chewksbury, Morton appeared to gratefully accept the hand that Edward proffered. He became master of the Rolls in 1472, and that would only be the start of his rise. In fact, there's really only one Lancastrian that Edward set his face against, the mad-bad Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter. Holland was married, unhappily, to Edward's sister Anne. He'd been with Margaret in exile, and had been part of the routs at the hands of York at both Leicester and Barnet. After that... He had run away as hard as he could and fled to Westminster Abbey, claiming sanctuary. Edward waved this aside, removed him from Westminster and put him in the Tower. He then allowed his sister Anne to divorce him and take up with her fancy man, Thomas St. Ledger. He couldn't quite bring himself to execute him, but in the Tower, Exeter would stay. Equally, Edward did not forget his friends, the folks who stayed with him through thin foremost of these was William Hastings. Just to remind you, Hastings had been solidly close to Edward, and combined closeness to Edward, and power, with the good opinion of pretty much everyone else, which is somewhat unusual. He was, in the words of Thomas More, an an honourable man, a good knight and a gentle loving man, and passing well-beloved. Hastings resumed his office as Chamberlain of England a post that gave him constant access to the seat of all power, the king. Hastings, nice guy though he apparently was, took himself off to the first-class carriages in the gravy train and settled back to watch the spondulicks flood in. Everyone knew that if you needed something doing, Hastings was your man. So you wanted Hastings to be well disposed towards you. Now, you might say that you don't care much for money, because money can't buy you love. But in this particular instance, you would be dead wrong. So religious houses made him their steward. Barons sent him gifts. In one particularly cute episode, Richard Earl Rivers dug around the back of the sofa, raided his wife's purse, and sent Hastings £26, 13 shillings and fourpence. Clarence made Hastings his chief steward, And then the habit went international. King Louis of France gave him a pension of 2,000 crowns. Charles, Duke of Burgundy, gave him 1,000 ecu. Hastings was a man you wanted on your side. And the honours and offices that Edward heaped on him in 1471 were just one part of the way that he was rewarded. Then there's the Stanley family. The Stanleys, erstwhile kings of man. The Stanleys did well. Both William and Thomas Stanley were to be pillars of Edward's regime in the northwest of England and the Duchy of Lancaster, though at the same time running a low-level struggle with Richard of Gloucester, who tried to extend his control there. Actually, when I say low-level, pretty high-level, actually. And this brings us, as night follows day, to Margaret Beaufort. Now, Margaret was in something of a pickle. Her son, Henry Tudor, was the last remaining imp, last possible challenger to the House of York, now, fortunately, Margaret had been married to a loyal Yorkist, Stafford, which protected her. However, Stafford inconveniently croaked in 1471, which was bothersome for Margaret. She needed a protector. Margaret Beaufort was a clever and tough political survivor. Over the next decade, she effectively gained the trust of Edward, even while Edward was trying to hunt down and kill her son, which normally gets in the way of a good relationship. Through careful work and lobbying, she even persuaded Edward, close to his death as it happens, to welcome Henry back as Earl of Richmond. But in 1471 she needed a protector, and although she and Stafford had been close, she had no time to hang around feeling sorry for herself. The man she chose as her protector was Thomas Stanley, Stanley had connections and already had children, so was looking mainly for status through his marriage, and Margaret brought that in spades. And so they got hitched, and Margaret began to use his connections to work towards the goal that dominated her life, protecting the rights and life of her only son, Henry Tudor. Then there was the Queen's family. Now, obviously, there'd been something of a reduction in numbers, Woodville-wise, after Warwick had got hold of them and done a bit of winnowing. But there were still plenty around. There were two by Elizabeth's first marriage, Thomas Grey and Richard Grey. Thomas Grey did well. He was made Marcus of Dorset, and to give him the lands to back up his new dignity, he was given in marriage Cecily Bonville, heiress to the Bonville and Harrington lands in the north and the south-west. You might remember the Bonvilles and their war with the Courtenays, which had rubbed out the male Bonville line. Now, Dorset was not the sharpest knife in the draw, which was unfortunate, since he was to find himself in some really, really complicated political situations. Thomas Grey had a younger brother, Sir Richard Grey. Richard was but 14 or so in 1471, and wasn't to enter public life until 1475, when he took part in a big joust. But most of the time, Richard would be together with his uncle. His uncle, who was the oldest male of the Woodville clan, now that Richard Woodville had been given the Warwick treatment, and shuffled off his mortal coil, gone to meet his maker. And in becoming an ex-Earl of Rivers, the title of Rivers had passed to Antony. You will, of course, recognise Anthony; He's not yet in the prime of his life, which is, of course, 52, as you will all know. He's still but a stripling of 31. In a way, he's the most attractive of the Woodville males. Renaissance man. Hair shirt wearer, it's got to be said. Famous jouster. Sadly, he'd rather blotted his copybook in 1469 by naffing off on crusade, when Edward was facing just the odd political problem, you know, that he could have done a bit of help with. And Edward had therefore marked his card as unreliable. Nothing terrible, not a target for retribution or punishment, just unreliable. Over the next decade, Rivers would go on crusade and pilgrimage to Portugal, Italy, and Rome, and Santiago. He had other interests, essentially, is the point I'm making. God, that sort of thing. The immediate impact was he didn't get much out of Edward's restoration in terms of new lands and riches and all that sort of thing. However, there was a new kid on the King's block who did jolly well, and this was Edward's little brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Richard had proved himself to his brother big time, and not just in contrast to his fickle, unreliable and glib brother Clarence. Richard had resolutely stayed by Edward's side. He had proved his military worth at Barnet and Tewkesbury. Richard of Gloucester was now just shy of his 20th birthday. We know that he was about five foot eight, shorter than his brother, and appeared to be of slight build. Through his adolescence, he developed something called scoliosis, a three-dimensional curvature of the spine. You would have had to have been very observant to notice it, while his right shoulder probably would have been a little higher than his left. He would probably also have been able to hide it with his clothing. The point, as Yorkists are trying to make, is that Shakespeare was guilty of exaggeration. Richard was probably a warrior probably suffered from indecision and insecurity, which is rather borne out by the portraits we have of him, where he looks drawn and anxious. And meant that, far from being the devious planner Shakespeare presented, he tended to act on impulse. But there was no doubt he was brave and loyal to his elder brother, and Edward valued him as much. Gloucester was effectively made Duke of the North, the successor to Warwick's lands in the North, and he was given the lands of the Lancastrian Earl of Oxford, Devere. But for the time being, he could not give Richard all of Warwick's lands, because all the lands in the Midlands and south now formally belonged to the Countess of Warwick, the Kingmaker's wife. Richard made his home now in Wensleydale, at the great castle of Bermiddleham, previously the Salisbury and Neville Caput. From there, he ruled the north alongside the Percy, Earl's of Northumberland. And also, standing in the way between Gloucester and the Warwick's inheritance, stood his brother, Clarence. Now, most of us, if we had been Clarence, would have been sobbing with relief that we'd got away with the most outrageous piece of villainy and treachery. I mean seriously. Not only had he betrayed two people in quick succession and therefore declared to the whole world his lack of honor and reliability, it also betrayed his own family. Essentially, I would have kept as quiet as possible, sat at the back hoped no one remembered who I was or what I'd done, and then carry out various good works in expiation of my sins. But not Clarence, oh, deary me, no. In fact, Clarence probably felt a little miffed at how he'd missed out. After all, the Lancastrian Parliament of the Readaption had declared him to be third in line to the throne after Edward of Westminster. Now he was nowhere after a brood as long as your arm. Clarence felt super miffed at Edward's settlement after Tewkesbury. Clarence was able to retain his honours but had to give up the Percy lands he'd held as the Percy's returned to power in Northumberland. He really had no cause whatsoever for complaint because he was given all the Courtney lands in Devon and Cornwall in compensation. But this was Clarence. Of course he was miffed. Plus, he had to watch as his little brother was laden down with honours and riches, and that sucked. Nonetheless, Clarence reconciled himself to the horrors of the situation as he saw it, because, through his wife, Isabel Neville, he was convinced he was now going to be even more mega-rich than he was already. So let me explain. Anne Beecham, Countess of Warwick, was the daughter of the Earl of Salisbury, if you remember, when she had married Warwick the Kingmaker, she had brought all those vast tracts of land from both the Beecham's, Earl of Warwick. When the Kingmaker got totaled, his Neville inheritance in the north was up for grabs and went mainly to Gloucester. But all the Warwick-Beecham inheritance, by law, came back to the Countess of Warwick until she also popped her clogs or married again. After Barnet and the Countess, had hitched up her skirts and legged it as fast as she could to Bewley Abbey in the New Forest. By the New Forest, of course, we mean that it was actually 400 years old at the time, created by Billy the Conk in 1079. Despite now being over 900 years old, today we still call it the New Forest when we should really call it the Jolly Old Forest. Or at least the Getting On A Bit Forest. Or in the Prime Of Life Forest, actually. Let's start a campaign. Anywho, Anne was ensconced in Bewley. This was inconvenient, most inconvenient. Clarence was very keen to get hold of all the Countess's lands, because the way he argued it, the Countess's daughter, Isabel, was her heir and his wife, and therefore the lands should come to him. The Countess did have another daughter, Anne Neville, But she had been married to that Lancastrian worm, Edward, who had been satisfactorily butchered at Tewkesbury, And so, presumably, that side of the family was now attainted and couldn't inherit flu, let alone one of the greatest honours of the land. And anyway, he, Clarence, wanted the land. And frankly, that, as far as Clarence was concerned, was as much of a reason as he needed. And indeed, it should be as much of a reason as anyone should need. Meanwhile, however, Gloucester wanted the lands because he wanted to marry Anne Neville. And Edward wanted it because he wanted to spend its income either on keeping his brothers quiet or on wine, women and song. Really, it was most inconvenient of the Countess to be alive. Someone really ought to do something about that. The thing is, Clarence and Richard didn't get on. Brothers, as we all know, are something of an inconvenience anyway. Isn't that right, Jonathan? Quite wrongly, Clarence appeared to think of younger brothers as the problem, whereas, of course, all listeners of the history of England know that it's older brothers that have all the advantages in life. Richard, meanwhile, had spent his younger years watching Clarence wow everyone. He'd seen how his sister, Margaret, had worshipped Clarence. And now Margaret was the Duchess of Burgundy. Meanwhile, Clarence, with his wit and charm, resented anyone taking the attention away from him, and as he saw Edward beginning to favour Richard, his fury knew no bounds. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. But never mind. Clarence was married to Isabel and had taken control of Anne so that she was in his wife's household. Plus, he'd taken control of the Countess's and Beecham lands. And possession is, after all, nine-tenths of the law. So as far as he was concerned, Gloucester could sing for it. In what follows, there are probably two ways of looking at things. There is a love story to be written here about Gloucester and Anne. Maybe it's already been written, actually. The Sun in Splendour, perhaps? I did read it when I was naught or something half a billion years ago when the planet was still cooling, but it was clearly a girls' book about emotions and relationships and that sort of thing, so I had to keep it hidden. Anyway, there's a love story to be written here about two children sharing the castle at Middleham in their innocence and youth, with Richard four years and senior and therefore with just some chance of looking cool. Just enough of an age gap for a teenage bloke to look cool. Just a story about a teenage girl in misery, bullied and despised by her mother-in-law, Margaret, married to an arrogant ass Edward, but then alone and abandoned by the death of her husband and captured by an avaricious and ambitious Clarence, only to be rescued by her childhood friend, Richard, and all that sort of thing. On the other hand, there could be a different story, a little bit more prosaic, a story of a rivalry between two enormously rich and privileged brothers, fighting viciously over a massive inheritance, using a 16-year-old girl as a helpless pawn in the game. He pays you money and takes your choice. And the one you choose will depend on your view of Richard III, probably. Anyway, here's how it went. Clarence had control of Anne and wanted it that way, to hang on to the land's. Richard wanted to marry Anne, and we can believe that Anne wanted to marry Richard. Whether she had any romantic feelings or not, Gloucester was probably the only bloke who could rip her from Clarence's clutches and give her a life. So, Gloucester went to Clarence and asked to see Anne. Clarence sent him away with a flea in his ear, snarling that he was in control of Anne's wardship, that he had no intention of marrying Anne to Richard. He might have added that he had no intention of marrying her to anyone, so that he could hold on to all her lands. But Gloucester did not lack for courage, and Gloucester was not about to give up. Nothing daunted. He turned up at Clarence's pied terre and demanded to see Anne. Clarence haughtily denied any knowledge of her. Richard hunted high, Richard hunted low, and eventually he found her. She had been hidden by Clarence as a cook's maid in the household of a friend. Rather dramatically, Richard burst in, demanded they bring Anne out and took her to sanctuary at St Martins-le-Grand in London. Gloucester then took his case to Edward and the King's Council and the lawyers got involved. Quote, So many arguments were, with the greatest acuteness, put forward on either side. That all those present and the lawyers were even quite surprised that these princes should find arguments in such abundance, by means of which to support their respective cases. Christmas 1471 was therefore most uncomfortable in the York household, with something of an undercurrent. Edward was working on a solution. Then in February they went to the Royal Palace at Sheen, and John Paston wrote home yesterday the king the queen and my lords of clarence and gloucester went to the pardon at sheen men say they were not at all in charity with one another what befell men cannot say the king entreats my lord of clarence for my lord of gloucester and it is said he answers that he gloucester may have my lady his sister-in-law but they will part with no livelihood as he says so what will fall i cannot say Essentially, Edward had ruled in favour of Gloucester, and told Clarence that Richard must be able to woo whomever he chose. Clarence continued in snarling mode, that he could marry whoever he liked, just so long as he didn't think any inheritance was going to come with her. And actually, more than that, Gloucester had to give up some of the lands he held to Clarence to sweeten the deal all of which does argue to a degree that Gloucester was following his heart, at least to some degree. After all, so far, it's not an attractive deal by medieval standards. Gloucester had to be pretty much at the top of the eligible bachelor list. And here, he appears not to be getting anything more than a wife. Having said that, Gloucester may well have known what was going to come next. Anyway, Anne and Gloucester were married in March 1472, and Anne installed in Middleham and if it had all ended there, well, it might have been just a romantic story. But there was more to come. Edward was clearly looking for a way to settle all of the Warwick inheritance on his brothers, and the laws of inheritance were, frankly, in the way. The Dukes were at each other's throats all the way through the early 70s. The Countess of Warwick desperately sent letters from her sanctuary trying to defend her rights and get somebody to work on her side. And I assume that in the background, Anne Neville begged her husband Gloucester to show her mother some mercy. And in January 1473, Gloucester's right-hand man, James Tyrrell, took the Countess from Puley up to Midland to be with her daughter. But it was not the start of a new dawn for the Countess. In 1474, the matter was finally settled. The Act of Parliament it required was brutal. It made the public chilling assumption that for legal purposes, the Countess was naturally dead. The fact that she was physically alive was to be just a detail. So in that case, it meant that her land could go to her heiresses, and thereby to their husbands, Clarence and Gloucester. The matter was settled. Clarence, it has to be said, was still not happy and continued to whine. The Countess of Warwick spent the next few years at Middleham. Some said basically as a prisoner, but there is some evidence that she had freedom of action and a small household, though nowhere near what she would have had if she'd had her rightful inheritance. It's an interesting episode, and in a way it's important and it gives an insight into Gloucester's character. Do you interpret his actions as that of a man defending Anne Neville, helping out her mother on the way and fighting the tyranny of Clarence? Or that of someone every bit as bad as Clarence, Marrying Anne Neville just to get hold of her inheritance and then imprisoning her mother to make sure that she could make no more trouble. Hate it or loathe it, none of the three brothers come out of it very well. Gloucester probably has the best chance of coming out of it well if you keep one eye closed, turn your head to one side and sort of squint. Clarence is just a bad, nasty piece of work with a serious entitlement problem. Edward is a king prepared to outwardly break one of the fundamental laws of property around which the medieval world revolved, just to keep a quiet life. I suspect that Edward was heartily sick of the whole affair, and heartily sick in particular of Clarence. Blood, I am reliably informed, is thicker than water, so fine. But again, if I'd been Clarence, the thing to do would have been to spend some quality time on his estates, far away from London, well out of the way. And just for a while, be utterly reliable. I imagine it will not surprise you to learn that Clarence did not take this approach. In 1473, the unreconstructed John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, descended on the south coast of England after plotting with the kingmaker's brother, George Neville, to restore Lancaster. The attempt at rebellion was a pretty miserable failure, and Oxford was captured and imprisoned. But there were sideways glances at Clarence, too. Had he been involved in any way with Neville, there were questions asked, glances cast, smoke drifting around, suggesting fire. In 1476, Clarence's wife Isabel died. And as a young man, Clarence was, of course, looking for a suitable marriage. One of the ideas mooted was to marry the greatest heiress in Europe, Mary of Burgundy, only child of Charles, and Margaret of Burgundy. This seemed eminently suitable to Clarence, this seemed eminently unsuitable to Edward, who had no desire to give an unreliable potential fratricide like Clarence that amount of power, or to give Burgundy some future claim on the throne of England. He blocked the move, therefore, and the bad blood thickened. It became more watery. Whatever. Now, if you'd happened to be hanging around Clarence's pram in 1476 or 7 you'd have been wise to wear a helmet. Because, boy, were their toys being chucked about, or what? Clarence now made a right royal pain in the proverbial of himself. Petulantly, he rarely appeared at court, pretending to be worried about being poisoned by the king. The households of Clarence and the king were at war as well. In the words of one chronicler, flatterers running to and fro from one side to the other and carrying backwards and forwards the words that had fallen from the two brothers, even if they had happened to be spoken in the most secret closet. Then, in 1477, came the case of John Stacey, though I have no information on Stacey's mum. John Stacey was an Oxford astronomer, accused of using his magic arts for evil purposes, which effectively was imagining the death of the king. So why is this relevant to Clarence, I hear you say? Well, Stacey and one of his associates, Thomas Burdett, were members of Clarence's household and affinity. Burdett was further accused of circulating the writings and inciting rebellion. So Edward appointed a powerful commission which duly condemned both men to death. I don't know, it's tricky. It had all the hallmarks of a political trial. Clarence was obviously angry at being helpless while his protégés were taken down. But again, if he'd had any sense, he'd have seen the warning signs that Edward was making a point here. But his pride, and just maybe his sense of right and wrong, just possibly, were offended. He stormed into a royal council meeting in Westminster when he knew Edward was elsewhere and he had a declaration of innocence of Baudet read out in the session. It was a very, very public declaration of defiance of the king. And then, at about the same time, there was the horrid case of the young maid Anchorette Twino, which I've mentioned in a previous episode. Bizarrely, Clarence became convinced that Anchorette had poisoned Isabel, his wife. He bypassed the channels of royal justice, had the helpless woman dragged before a judge and jury, browbeat and bribed the jury into a conviction. Several of the jury members actually apologised to the poor woman, who was then executed. All of this before any royal justices could get involved. Edward summoned Clarence to meet him at Westminster and gave him a dressing down about his conduct, about his perversion of the laws of England and his ridiculous politicking. For good measure, Edward invited the Mayor of London and his Alderman along to enjoy the show. And if there was one thing Clarence would have hated more than being given a dressing down by his brother, it was being given a dressing down by his brother in front of the Mayor of London and his Alderman. Whether or not, as he listened, Clarence realised that something fundamental had changed, I do not know. But it had. Edward had had enough. Edward was now set on an irrevocable and dramatic path he made a decision. Clarence was taken away and placed in custody. This was June 1477. Through the rest of the year, Clarence moulded in jail. Now, one account has it that the Woodvilles here set to work, that the Queen bent Edward's ear, that basically no one was safe until Clarence was silenced. And then the Queen's relatives helped build a case against Clarence, but really there's no evidence of this whatsoever and it probably says more about the Woodville's basic unpopularity than it does about anything else. What Gloucester's role in all of this is not clear, but as so far as we know, he actually argued on Clarence's side. That's what the only contemporary account says that mentions him at all. Anyway, all over Christmas, the festivities went on while Clarence moldered in jail. He continued to moulder while outside there was a big party and a tournament, organised for the betrothal of the four-year-old Duke of York, heir to the throne, and Anne Mowbray, the six-year-old heiress to the last of the Mowbrays, as another Norman noble family finally ran into the sand. There was jousting and finery and all kinds of fun. And maybe it's significant that Gloucester didn't turn up to watch Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers. Housed and armed, in the habit of a white hermit, as he went to the joust. That's how you jousted, apparently, those days. Housed and armed in the habit of a white hermit. Anyway, there you go. At the following Parliament, the grim truth of Edward's intentions unfolded. One of the best-informed chroniclers of the Abbey of Croyland was there, seeing the whole hideous story reveal itself to his increasing disbelief and horror. He wrote... My mind quite shudders to relate what happened in the following Parliament, for then was to be witnessed a sad strife, waged between two brothers of such high quality. Amazingly and uniquely, I think, against the backdrop of the painted chamber at Westminster, Edward the King brought charges against his own brother, personally. The charges were long and specific. Here's a bit of it. The duke sought to turn Edward's subjects against him by saying that Thomas Bedette was falsely put to death and the king resorted to necromancy. He also said that the king was a bastard, not fit to reign, and made men take oaths of allegiance to him without accepting their loyalty to the king. There was more, much more. But the king ended with, The duke has thus shown himself to be incorrigible and to pardon him would threaten the common weal which the king is bound to maintain. No one spoke for Clarence. Witnesses were brought, but the Croyland chronicler couldn't tell if they were meant to be witnesses or accusers. Only Clarence was allowed to speak for Clarence, and for once the charm and wit and intelligence that had saved Clarence was no longer enough. He defiantly denied all the charges. He desperately demanded the right to defend his honour by combat. But Parliament had heard enough, and probably seen enough. Indeed, the law itself actually held that the king's word, if based on his personal knowledge, was, quote, the most perfect of records. So actually, who could argue, since the king himself had brought the charges? The death sentence was pronounced, and Clarence was led away. Edward then dithered, faltered at the step of fratricide. And now it was the House of Commons who pushed it and reminded Edward of his decision and the need to get on with it. And in the secrecy of the Tower, Clarence was presented with a barrel of sweet wine from Greece. Malmsey wine. He was presented with the Malmsey wine head first and drowned in the barrel. Well, I never did. I mean, we've always wanted to drown our brothers once in a while. Let's be honest. Only natural, really. But really... I mean, what a dreadful waste of good wine. Seriously, it's not an edifying episode in the annals of York. Most modern historians seem to accept it all, really, and point at Clarence's complete unreliability, arrogance, stupidity, greed and ambition. And that is all true and undeniable. But it's still brutal. Bishop Stubbs in the 19th century was less forgiving. Old Stubbsy called it, The crowning act of an unparalleled list of judicial cruelties, which those of the next reign supplemented but do not surpass. Well, I suppose being a king means you have to take some nasty decisions. And there's no doubt that Clarence was a dipstick of considerable proportions, and there was absolutely no sign of him coming to the end of his dipstickery. Many of the accusations probably were true. Some of them were probably exaggerations. But there you go. So, necessarily brutal or just brutal? The choice is yours. Now, I've jumped a bit ahead of the narrative to carry through the story of Clarence and Gloucester and Edward. So next week, we'll go back a bit, back to another favourite threesome of ours. England, France and Burgundy. Which only leaves it to me, ladies and gentlemen, to thank you all for your kind attention and to thank those of you who have donated such as my faithful and most laudable monthly donators, Oak, Bernard, Mary, James and Russell, and also those generous souls who have donated this week, Timothy and William. Thanks, everyone. Good luck and have a great week.